We are going to open the Word of God together um, to Luke chapter 10 as we are continuing our study um, through their eyes, through the eyes of the original followers and those um, original eyewitnesses um, of Jesus' earthly ministry from even before his birth to his resurrection and what the church became after that. So uh, we are moving right along. We've only got two more weeks um, in this Easter study. Of course, Easter is in two weeks and there's some uh, announcements in your bulletin about that, so keep uh, uh, keep praying and investing in people, inviting people to our Easter services. We're excited for sunrise service and for our normal worship times as well. Uh, can't wait for that. So we're moving right along toward um, the grand finale of, of Luke's message. Um, next week, we'll take a very special look at Peter, uh, because Luke um, gives us an, an insight about Peter's life that is uh, that the other Gospels don't. So you don't want to miss next week a special look at Peter's uh, uh, encounter with Christ and how he went from being uh, a nobody to being a somebody that failed miserably, but also rebounded and became an integral part of the church. So don't miss, don't miss next week. And of course, Easter Sunday will be, uh, will be an awesome time. But today, we're going to be looking at Luke 10, and then later we'll look at Luke 15 um, as we talk about um, the idea of, of what it means to be a prodigal. Um, and all of us have identified with that term in the house today, but we may find that somebody identifies with that term that we did not expect, um, and, and that'll be a little teaser for the end of our message. But uh, again, we're just a few weeks away from the end of our journey through Luke, but today might be, things are not wanting to stay still today, but we'll let that go. The day might be the most important message in our study through Luke, and I, I mean that when I say that, uh, because it's in our study today that we get perhaps, and Luke gives us perhaps the clearest look into God's heart, and we can even hear His very heartbeat if you listen closely, I don't think that's overstating it at all. The, the message today from God's Word is one that has reverberated throughout time with the most impact, uh, more than any other message that has been given from God's Word. I truly believe that. Uh, it's unmistakably the gospel that has resulted in changed hearts and has saved lives uh, more than any other message. I think what we bring out of today's message is the greatest of them all. Not because uh, of the speaker, but clearly because of the word and what we glean from from God today. So Luke so far has teased out this thesis of his story. This is really kind of the main theme he's been building up toward. Um, As he's telling us the story of Jesus Christ, and he's doing so in an orderly fashion through the eyes of those who had breathed the same air as Jesus, who had walked the same paths as Jesus. Most importantly, they had soaked in and reveled in all of the words and the wonders of Jesus, many of them being recipients of those wonders and hearers of those words. But Luke feels confident uh, that anyone who reads this account can be as confident and have certainty uh, concerning who Jesus was and who he still is. Because Luke, Luke believed that when he was writing, he believed that it wasn't who Jesus was, but it was who Jesus is. And I think for us, it's not just who Jesus was so many years ago, but it's who Jesus still is today. Luke started his story before the days of Jesus, spotlighting the increasing amount of unrest around the Jewish religion, around the Jewish faith, around the temple particularly. Um, The once epicenter of God's activity had become a desolation. Uh, What once was considered the dwelling place of God was now more of a symbolic tombstone 
for what God used to do and who God used to be and what Israel used to be. Luke's story begins with a priest trying his best to hold on to hope, having once in a millennium and having a once in millennium encounter with God, where an angel officially kicks off this brand new era, this brand new day, promising that a savior is on his way from God. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Luke's opening act, and we've seen the promises that Luke has made to us, the promises that Jesus has made to us, that Jesus embodies for us. We've seen the true presence of God. We've, we've talked about a new Passover from God, and we've encountered real power from God, and that's a promise that we can hold on to today, that in Christ, there is the true presence of God. It's not in a temple, right? It's not in a building. It's not in a service once a week. The presence of God is with Jesus and the Spirit that He gives us. The true Passover, the new Passover, is not a lamb slain in Egypt. It's not a lamb slain once a year taking care of sins until the next year. The true Passover is what Jesus came to do on the cross. And the real power from God is the impact that Jesus can have on you, that He values you, and that He cares about you, has a purpose for you, and He impacts you, and He can change your life from the heart to even your flesh. And what we've learned, and I hope you've learned this because, wow, it's so good. We've learned that the real presence of God would not be confined to the temple. The real Passover would not be a temporary sufficient, temporarily sufficient. Power would not be and is not limited to Israel. From the announcement of Jesus' birth to the beginning of His ministry, Luke provides us hard evidence, eyewitness accounts and experiences that attest to the authentic, genuine, stunning, undeniable presence of God which brings us pardon for our sins and brings us power unto eternal life. But what comes next may be the most important phase of his story. Because it provides something that is so unique and is so different from what anybody would expect. And you, if you were trying to to, to anticipate, would never expect what comes next. Listen, if Luke was writing just another religious manifesto, if he is just writing another religious pamphlet or another religious document trying to sell the world on yet another religion, these beginning bullet points may not seem too special, Uh, Of course, a religious piece aiming to sell the world on why they should buy in. Of course, they're going to dangle the presence of God and the power of God and the forgiveness from God out in front of anyone. In a world full of religions and things to devote and invest yourself in, anyone trying to to evangelize their particular beliefs knows it's an imperative to highlight what your faith offers over another faith, what your faith exclusively offers. So if Luke was writing just another religious manifesto, he probably would have covered the points we've already talked about. He probably would have talked about the presence of God, the power of God, the provisions from God, and he would have touted the exclusive access that is found in Jesus. But here's the thing, and Luke knew this, and you know this. The reason why Luke did not stop there. The reason why Luke did not just provide these bullet points of why we should believe and expect us to is Luke knew, God knows that those things in and of themselves are not enough to convince anyone to believe. 
Now, of course, they're incredibly uh, incredible. Their incentives, their bullet points, but religions have always struggled to really engage people on the basis of experience alone. Religion loves to tell you you can experience God. You can see His power. You can feel His presence. You can receive His provision. But that's only good enough to get you once a week at best. And Luke knew that Jesus was too good to just be a once a week visitor into your life. That he was too good to be confound to just a religious set of beliefs. And he knew that what he was offering the world was bigger and better than that. And you know why? I, how I know that, that his motives were different? And you know how I know that religion knows that these bullet points aren't enough? Listen, when you hand somebody a pamphlet that says this is what we believe, they look at it for five minutes and they say, okay, what else you got? But you know how I know that religion knows that these bullet points are never enough? Because religion always feels the need to leverage something else along with these. Every religion knows that it's not going to get you with just bullet points. So religion pulls out its ace up its sleeve every single one, every single time. Religion leverages fear. If you don't, you won't. If you want to experience true power and receive true pardon, if you want to know the true presence, then you must, you better, you've gotta, and if you don't, you are toast. Fear is the barb, the hook at the end of the line. Just in case, and when the line doesn't convince us to latch on, the hook digs in and drags us along. Even Judaism, the Old Testament prophets, they delved into leveraging fear to draw people back in. Even John the Baptist, the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus, even he is on record as warning those who don't trust in Jesus of what the alternative may be. But what is most amazing, what makes Luke's story of Jesus so unique and so compelling, is Jesus never once leverages fear. Even though he clearly offered something that could not be found in none other. Even though if you don't turn to Jesus, the alternative is absolutely horrific. Jesus never once, and you can fact check me, he never once felt the need to leverage guilt, shame, or fear of any kind. Why is that? Jesus, Luke presents Jesus as being confronted with all kinds of questions and doubt. And never once does he say, well, I said it, so that settles it. Obey or else, as every religion does. Even versions of Christianity do that. But Jesus never did. He does something that religious leaders and even religious followers almost never do. He would sit down and talk to people that disagreed with him. And he wouldn't scream at them. He would sit down. He would engage in a civil conversation with people. And who does that nowadays, right? I mean, he would respond to somebody on Facebook without just calling them a complete, you know, ignorant person, right? He would engage in conversation without saying, you're wrong, I'm right, get out. And of course, if anybody ever had the authority to do just that, it would be him, wouldn't it? But he never did. He would sit down and talk to people. He didn't feel the need to run from questions. He didn't run from conversation. He engaged. He was vulnerable and open. And he was never insecure about what he had to teach. So much people that poked, even people that poked holes in his teaching, he never got uncomfortable. And isn't it true, even when we're completely confident, even when you know without a doubt that you're right, 
Questions and dissension and opposition can make you a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? You get combative when somebody questions you, especially when you're right. And when you're wrong, you get a little bit frustrated because your word you might be showed as not being prepared or not being right. But even when you're absolutely right, when somebody comes at you and questions you, there's something about us that gets a little angry. We get a little defensive. And why is that? And why is it that Jesus never did that? His motives were so pure. Jesus did not mind opposition or questions because His motive was so pure and it was almost unbelievable how pure His motives or motive was. They're so unbelievable that when you read them in the context of how religions work, it would even be more unbelievable to think that somebody would make this up. That when you understand why Jesus was doing what He was doing and you understand what was driving Him the whole time, you sit back and think, that's so unbelievable, it's actually believable. Because nobody would fake that. Nobody would make that up. And Luke features some of the close-up encounters that Jesus had with people who dissented and disagreed with Him. And it's in these encounters and in the, uh, that they underscore His motive for the mission He was on. And where this really comes to light is His encounters and conversations with the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders that were so against Him and His followers. He was never threatened by their intimidation. He was never threatened by their intimidation because he was more driven by his motivation. Now, this is a sidebar that is completely separate from the message, but I think it's so true and it's worth saying. If your motivation is pure and your motivation is genuine, no amount of intimidation or threats has the power to take you down, to shut you up, or slow you down. If your motivations are pure, no amount of intimidation can take you off that road. You can tell a lot about somebody's motivation by how they respond or how they react to the, to the enemy's intimidation. And Jesus' motivation was greater and stronger and morally superior. And it shows up so clearly in how He engaged with opposition. And I think we can learn so much from Him. And I think that Luke includes this in, this, this in the story, this angle in his story, because it seems so unnecessary until you realize how necessary it actually is. I mean, let's look at it from the end game, from the end point of view. Jesus rose from the dead. He had all the authority if He is who He claims to be and who history bears record of Him being and who Luke believed Him to be. He doesn't owe anybody anything. Rather, we owe Him everything. Out of sheer duty. But Jesus did not want you to simply believe out of duty, out of obligation. As we'll find out, His mission was driven by something greater than just duty and responsibility and greater than fear. So let me set this up for you. Jesus has been commissioning His followers to go out and proclaim that He is the Messiah. He's given them authority to basically pass along His presence and His power in this temporary way that teases out something greater that's coming down the road. So people begin to pitch their, people begin placing their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. All over Judea, even Gentiles are believing that their status with God lies in Jesus' hands, not the temple's and not their own. They don't know the terms of this deal, but Jesus is writing checks that He apparently has all the intentions of cashing. He's making promises that He swears He will keep. So why not trust Him? 
I mean, no one else has ever offered salvation free of charge and free of any sort of inverse debt. And clearly God was with him because look at what he's doing. So many were proclaiming him to be the Messiah. And this all riles up the religious leaders something fierce. They, they come at him from every angle, every side. And one day, Jesus is teaching. One of the leaders has placed themselves in the audience as a plant in attempt to badger and debate him. And this will go on for months and months and even years. And it's in this particular exchange that Jesus begins to detail his motive. And if you're reading Luke, you can see this coming. Just prior to all this, Jesus did something really strange and off base for him. He starts praying out loud. And he never did this. He always retreated. He always went to the mountains or went to the garden. But in this exchange, in this company of all these people with all these uh, opposing him and all these that followed him, he starts talking to himself. He starts praying to the Father while he's in the midst of his disciples. And he makes a comment to God about his passion and his purpose. And it's almost like he's reminding himself of what his mission is. And it's clear that it was not lost on him at all. And I want you to notice this, and just reading this little excerpt in Luke 10, verse 21. We, we kind of, and this is one of the rare occasions that we get to hear what Jesus prayed. And listen to the words that Jesus prays and, and talks to God with. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. In earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So Jesus is telling, in His prayer, is making it clear that the only way we truly know the heart of God is through the life and revelation of Jesus. That there is something exclusive about God that is only found in Jesus Christ. Then He turned to the disciples and said privately, Blessed are your eyes which see these things, that see, things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, to hear what you hear and have not heard it. So Jesus is, is talking out loud and he seems to be suggesting that what he's doing is something brand new, separate from the Old Testament, better than the Old Testament, and exclusive in bringing people to God. Jesus discredits, and this is so offensive to the Jews. This is why they got so angry at him, of course. Jesus discredits any and every Old Testament experience as being only partial and unfulfilling. And and you may say, well, what about that and this? What about Moses and David and Solomon? He says, all those things are partial and unfulfilling. He seems to be saying that what's driving him and what's unfolding through him is so rare and so rich that you might miss it because it's so different. And almost too good for this world. And it's not always visible. And you don't always feel it. But what he is about to do is going to be remembered forever that even when it doesn't make sense, it will be unbelievably believable. And this may explain some of the misunderstandings and the miscommunication between the religious of the day. And I can't possibly overstay when I say this that still no one saw what was coming. And what he would begin to teach from this point on was completely and utterly surprising. But what could be greater than the old? 
From here on, as he continues to teach and build up towards revealing his motive and his heartbeat, and the temple lawyers employed uh, to, to uh, try to break down Jesus' ministry, they, they send out these plants to try to disprove him with facts and color him as a lawbreaker. These experts on the law, uh, they, they were on staff to enforce rulings against lawbreakers. To enforce the, the, what the law taught, and they would understand every angle and interpretation, possible application, to pin down anyone who might cross the line. And to them, God's favor was not something that was just full and fancy free, dispensed to everyone as Jesus and His followers seemed to be proclaiming. To them, favor was earned. Salvation was a merit system. It was a lottery with odds stacked against the most. And they began picking apart Jesus' interactions with those the law and temple had turned away. Jesus continually celebrated and validated outcasts while butting heads with the elite. He would break the Sabbath day traditions if it meant healing somebody. He would ignore ceremonial laws if it meant helping somebody. He valued people who had been condemned by the law. And religion interpreted this as contempt for the law on Jesus' part. And what was very strange to them, and what was very strange to anyone that was on looking, people who were nothing like Jesus loved Jesus. And those who were most like Him mostly hated Him. The religious people that believed in the same God and worshipped the same God and went to the same temple and read the same Bible, they hated Him. But the people that had never been to the temple at all and never read the Torah at all and never obeyed the law at all, they loved Jesus. And He loved them. The truth be told, the religious leaders were jealous Jesus did not like spending time with them as much as He did those beneath them. But there was still a lot of speculation about Jesus from both sides. What was he after? He never asked for money. He never entertained the idea of running for office or starting a rebellion. He spoke against the establishment, but he wasn't about to build his own temple and create a new platform for worship. And what was most strange about Jesus, he seemed to be content just dwelling with people. Jesus, what, are you, what do you want to do today? just want to hang out. You, you mean, hey Jesus, you've got the power to take down Rome. Yeah, 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 I know that. Jesus, you have the power to shut the temple down and get, the, get worship back in the right direction. Jesus, you have power to raise everyone from the grave. You have power to do all these impossible things. I mean, come on, Jesus, what do you want to do today? Can we walk across the, walk across the Mediterranean Sea, right, just to see if we can do it? I mean, what do you want to do, Jesus? I just want to spend time with you. And you know, there's that leper colony. Down. Jesus, come on. There's that leper colony down the road. Jesus, please, can we just stay away from the leper colony today? It smells and it's... it's... I just want to go hang out with those lepers today. I, I want to go and I want to hang out with, uh, with those people that are waiting outside that doctor's office and they've been there for a hundred times and they can't afford their bills, but they keep going back. I want to go hang out at the temple and go to the place where all the outcasts are. And I want to spend time with them. I want to just spend time with people. And it was so perplexing. How could someone as famous as Jesus, as anointed as him, just be content with with? 
There had to be more. The religious leaders suspected he was up to no good. His followers honestly were beginning to wonder when the next shoe would drop, when he would declare himself king and do something spectacular that would result in their own prosperity. So Jesus knows that everyone is starting to wonder what is really driving his ministry, what is going on, what's his M.O. And on top of that, the religious leaders were so aghast at his continual kindness toward those they called losers and those they made to be outcasts and those they deemed unworthy So Jesus decides to get everybody in the same crowd and tell a story. That was his favorite thing to do. And turn over to Luke 15. And we'll close with that story in just a few minutes. I want us to know something about Jesus, the storyteller, though. He was the master communicator in every way. Perhaps as a storyteller, he was unrivaled and shined the brightest. His stories always had a big picture motive. And here's the thing about storytellers. And if you like to write and if you like to read, you know this. Good storytellers know there's one thing that is so important. You've got to cast a wide net. You don't have to go deep. Just go wide. Not only keep the story simple, but always make an entry point into the story seem accessible and welcoming to anybody listening and to anybody reading. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, you know this is important. If you're a storyteller, this is so essential. You cast a wide net. If you're a filmmaker, if, you're in, if you ha- are trying to create a narrative, you cast a wide net and you make sure that at any point in the story there's a door where anybody can feel comfortable and welcomed to walk into the story and find someone they identify with. A good storyteller wants a listener or a viewer or a reader to find themselves in the story, especially if you're seeking a real-world impact or effect. Because identifying oneself in a moral-infused story can cause one to find and become that same person in the real world. And that's why Jesus told stories. Because He knew what impact they could have. Good stories make you believe in possibility. They don't marginalize anybody. Jesus' stories are no different. He sought to define his mission and motive through storytelling, he presented God as a presence who surrounds not just some of us, but all of us. He presented God as an opportunity to everybody. He did not ignore sin or ignore the law. As some people said, Jesus, you're always you're bypassing people's sin. You're ignoring the law. He did not ignore the sin or ignore the law. He was trying rather to engage with people who had been taken captive by sin and condemned by the law. He told stories that offered no judgment concerning who you were, offering grace that aimed to counter in every way the effects of sin. And his stories had the ability to do something incredible. They would get people who opposed each other to agree with each other. His stories were so captivating that even in a divided audience of religious and sinners, of X versus Y, he could get everyone to shake their heads in agreement. And sometimes when he knew he had everyone engaged, he would subvert acceptations to to send his message. And it's in Luke 15 where he sends the ultimate message, a message that I think you'll not soon forget. So the setup is the tax collectors draw near to him. 
tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him in Luke 15, verse 1. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners or welcomes sinners and eats with them and dines with them as if they're his equal. So you see the tension. He recognizes the tension. The religious wonder why he's welcoming sinners. The sinners are wondering why he's tolerating the religious people. So Jesus decides to tell a little story. Verse 3. So he spoke this parable, or this story, to them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? You know what Jesus was doing with that question? Everybody would have shook their head and thought, well, if I was a shepherd, I hope I'm never a shepherd, but if I was a shepherd, if I was a shepherd, I could not let one little sheep get away. So everyone began to shake their head, and the religious Pharisee and the tax collector sitting across from each other would have looked over and saw them both shaking their heads and then immediately thought, oh no, what am I doing? I'm agreeing with that person over there, right? But this is what Jesus was so good at doing. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." Now, you got to know the shepherds were noteworthy for their faithfulness to their flock, every one of them. David was a shepherd boy, right? He was, his legacy was not forgotten. As a shepherd boy, he valued every last one of his sheep, and this, was left, this left an impact on all of Israel. David is on record of telling King Saul one day, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth, and I slew the enemy. So David was this hero, and everyone knew that if he cared for every last sheep, we've got to value them as well. But then Jesus makes this weird connection. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just or righteous people who need no or think they don't need any repentance. And all of a sudden they start thinking, well, yeah, I guess if, you know, the religious are like, well, I guess if, I'm, if I was a lost sheep, I guess that makes sense. And the tax collectors are thinking, well, yeah, this is why we love you, Jesus. Because you make us feel welcome and you make us feel celebrated and, and a part of this. And this was a button of pride for shepherds because sheep were a means of salvation for the people. So everyone is shaking their heads, both religious and sinners, because of course you go after the little lost sheep. And Jesus sends a zinger to those critical of the company he keeps. Because here's a big critique about the religious leaders Jesus had. And here's something that religion always struggles with. Religion becomes obsessed with keeping but is oblivious to finding. Religion is so focused on protecting people from the outside evil and keeping the few they have left, it is oblivious to finding those they don't have. And doesn't religion continue to struggle to, with that to this day? Religion, and the problem with religion, there's no infrastructure in religion for redemption. Religion is all about keeping people. Religion doesn't know how to save people. Religion loves when you get it. But when you don't get it, or if you're new, or if you've never been here before, religion looks at you like you're just, you just don't have a place. Redemption requires a pursuit 
of lost things. Jesus goes on, verse number 8. There was a woman had ten silver coins. If she lost, loses one of the coins, is not a, uh, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, this woman who received her pay for two weeks of work in a day-to-day society to lose one of those coins means to lose a whole all days worth of provision. This was not just about a day, a coin. This was about a day. And for you, it's not just about a decision. It's about your destiny. And Luke goes, on, Luke goes on, Jesus goes on, and tells the final story. The parable of a reckless, wasteful, and prodigal son. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the young son gathered all together, journeyed to a faraway country, and there wasted his provisions with prodigal and riotous living. But when he spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to, do, to be in want. And he went and joined himself to the citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly be, have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, if the story ended there, and let me just set this up. In the crowd, everyone's gasping. Even the sinners and tax collectors are thinking, who would do that? Who would basically say to their dad, Dad, you're not dying fast enough, so can you go ahead and give me my part of the estate so I can go live it up now? And then he ran out of everything, and everyone would have been thinking, he got what he deserved. Can't wait to see the wrath of God come down on that reckless, rebellious, Wasteful, prodigal son. Now, if the story ended there, it would absolutely be a story of a reckless, wasteful, and prodigal son. And especially if there were a few more details. Couldn't you imagine the story ending something like this? And he arose and ran to his father. After many days of begging, his father reluctantly agreed to see him and scorned him. Enough with the act, his father stated coldly. Do you take me as a fool? Do you suppose begging will undo all that you've done? And in anger, his father condemned him, denounced him as a son, and cast him out. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And everyone would have said, that's what he deserves. But that's not how the story ends, is it? So he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said, Hush, I don't need to hear the speech. 
And he said, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to be merry because there was something worth celebrating. According to the Father. Of course, the older son shows up. Perplexed by the sound of music, he inquires to find out what is happening. And verse 28 tells us he was angry. He was angry, not compassionate. And notice in verse 28, he would not go in the house. So guess who comes out to find him? The same father. And the father came out and pleaded with his son. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments any time. And you never gave me a young goat that I might be married with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours who devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? I mean, come on, Dad. And he said, Son, You're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. The older brother took issue with his father's love being so extravagant. If you were to ask the older brother, his father's love was reckless and wasteful. Oh, what's a good word for reckless and wasteful? His father's love was prodigal. And that's what the story is all about. The story is about a father who from a religious perspective is reckless and wasteful and prodigal. He's too extravagant with his love. But from the father's perspective, there's nothing reckless about it. There's nothing wasteful about it. There's nothing prodigal about it. Oh, it may be extravagant, but that's how the father likes it. His love is relentless. It is winsome. And it's purposeful. Verse 20. verse Verse number 20 is so powerful. The father had compassion. And guess what? In verse 28, the father had compassion. And guess what? The father's compassion never runs out. His compassion never runs out. It drove Jesus to the cross where He bled out for our sins, for your sins. And that's what kept Jesus invested in a world that was rejecting Him. That's what keeps Jesus investing in a world that continues to reject Him. In a world that is embracing sin and entertaining death, His cross still paid for sin. His resurrection still overcame death. And he may not be accepted by everybody, but he absolutely still loves everybody. And the world may ridicule and mock and roll their eyes and drive on by, but his love still chases and pursues and overwhelms them. And it's all around them. And that's what makes Jesus so unique. Different than you and me. Different from religion. Different from most brands of Christianity even. 
He loves, He forgives, and He saves unconditionally, unrestrictedly, and with unlimited grace. He doesn't leverage fear because fear doesn't overcome sin or death. Fear works for those things. Fear is the enemy's last-ditch effort to keep us when he knows he's losing. But thank God, love never loses. Love never fails because love overcame your sin and your grave. Jesus' sacrifices made this absolutely clear. John put it this way. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior, the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. So by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in the Father's love. If you want to know what the heart of God is, if you want to hear the heart of God is, read verse number 20 where He saw the Son and with compassion He ran to Him. Read verse 24 where the Son was dead and He was alive again and He celebrated His homecoming. Read verse 31 where the Father says, it is all about being with me, not what you've done for me or not done. Greater than an experience from God is an encounter with God. And that's why, with Jesus, salvation begins with with. When you come towards Him, He runs toward you. And I promise you, His compassion will overwhelm your shame. His grace will overpower your sin. His life will prevail over all of death. And that's why you can trust in Jesus. Because He absolutely loves you. And He absolutely will do whatever it takes to make it clear to you how much He loves you. May this remind us of why the Easter season is on our calendars. Of why the Father would send a Son. Not to win people out of fear or out of duty. But because He loves you. And the provision has been made. All we have to do is come. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this reminder of your great and amazing love. Father, thank you that the Father in that story did not scold and denounce and condemn and reject the boy. The Father felt something that day. And if the Father felt something that day and you don't change, that means that you feel something today. That your response toward our rebellion and your response toward our sin is one of compassion.